This audio is brought to you by Muslim Central. Please consider donating to help cover our running costs and future projects by visiting www.muslimcentral.com forward slash donate. sisters and respected guests, we are very grateful for the opportunity to be able to offer you a window to Islam and to ask you the question, what do you know about Islam? And we mean, what do you what do you really know about Islam? Not what you've heard about Islam and not what you have read in the newspapers, not what you have seen on television, not what your teacher or your professor said about Islam, not what your neighbors or your friends said, or what the priest or the minister of your church said, but what, what you have come to understand from basic facts, historical, scriptural facts about the system of life which is called Islam. Not even necessarily what you have witnessed through the behavior of some Muslims because 
I don't think I have to tell an objective person that a Christian is not necessarily an example of the life of Christ. And a Muslim, therefore, is not necessarily an example of the faith that he or she might claim to embrace. To be fair and objective, such sources of information about Islam or any other faith would not be an acceptable source for judging or understanding anything or anyone. Why then are so many people convinced and why are so many people standing in judgment about a subject that they have very little information, if any, and very few actual facts about? The strangest thing is that Islam is a system of life a global faith that one could know very easily by going to the sources. And the Quran has two sources. One is a scriptural source, which is the Quran. And the other is a human source, which is the life of the Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him. In the same way, we could make an objective investigation into the life and message of Jesus Christ, and that would allow us to know if we want to call ourselves Christians, how we could follow the life and message of Jesus Christ. Look directly to his message called the Evangel, or the good news, and look directly to his life and his behavior. This will tell us what it is to be a Christian if we want to use that terminology. Now I realize that some people came here this evening to contend with a preconditioned mind having done some preparation which they may consider to be a critique of some sort and that's okay that's fine but my presentation this evening is not for those people they're welcome to listen and given the opportunity they're welcome to put forward their constructive criticisms. But my message this evening is for those people who came here with an open mind, an open heart, because only an open mind and an open heart can receive anything. You try it as an example. Turn a glass upside down and see if you can pour something into it. You cannot. 
Additionally, I ask you, open your mind and open your heart for a moment, if you dare. Set aside your preconditioning, set aside your prejudices, those that were given to you by parents, by institutions, by your own set of faith or values. Set that aside for a moment and listen. I promise you, we won't take you hostage. We won't make an attempt to brainwash you, although some human beings could stand some brainwashing. But what we will try to do is to provide you with a simple, open, candid window to Islam. Now Islam is a faith system. Some may want to refer to it as a religion, and it might be appropriate to do so. But in my discussion with human beings, religion as a word in the modern world has some negative connotations and restrictions. So I don't prefer to use the word religion. I prefer to use the word faith or life system. Now as a faith and life system, Islam is based upon basically five pillars. Those five pillars are very simple. We bear witness that there's none to be worshipped except the Creator, Almighty God. The fact that we use the word Allah doesn't mean that we believe in a different God than that of Christians or that of Hindus or Buddhists or that of Jews. No. There's only one creator. There's only one source of creation. There's only one source and origin of existence. And for us we bear witness that this is Almighty God. Such a bearing of witness and such a declaration is the same declaration of Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, Isaac, Jacob, Zechariah, John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, the son of Mary, and of course the prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. Your God, my God, the creator of the heavens and the earth. We use the word Allah in the Arabic language because the word, uh, the letters A-L is a definite article. It means the, only, exclusive. And Allah means God, object of worship. So when you put them together, Allah, it makes it very clear, concise, and exclusive that we're speaking about the only. Lord, God, sovereign, creator of the heavens and the earth and everything that is in it. This is not the God of the Muslims, not the God of Muhammad, some special God of the Arabs. It is the creator of the heavens and the earth and everything which is in it. We bear witness that Muhammad is the messenger of God. And why do we say that? Because by saying that, 
we are admitting that there was a chain of prophets. Not one, not the final, but a chain of prophets. Some whose names that we would know, and some whose names we may not know. And these prophets and these messengers were extraordinary human beings. They were not ordinary human beings. Yet they were human beings. None of them were gods. Fathers of gods, sons of gods, daughters of gods, relatives of gods. They were all human beings that ate and slept and drank and lived and left this life. From Adam the first, man, God, messenger, the first man and God's messenger and prophet, Adam. Your common father, my common father. The first man whom God created, whom God put upon this earth, whom God taught him some knowledge, whom God tested, and whom God caused through him and his mate, our common mother, Hawa, or Eve, as is known, to procreate. And here we are. From Adam to Noah, Abraham, Moses, David, Solomon, Isaac, Ismael, Jacob, Zechariah, John the Baptist, Jesus Christ, up to Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him. Many more that we could name, but that it would not be necessary for us to do so. We believe in all of those prophets and their divine mission. That is, they did not come and sometime in their life they figured out they had something to do. And therefore they wrote a book. Or they woke up one day and they had this burning feeling to deliver a message to the human beings. No, it is our belief that every prophet and messenger was sent by Almighty God, selected by Almighty God, for his message as a prophet to deliver a message to a particular people and for those that doubted to prophesize and to demonstrate phenomena that we may refer to as miracle for the doubters, for the challengers to exhibit miracles so that those doubters, those challengers would know that verily, that human being is in fact a selected, chosen person of God. We say Muhammad is the messenger of Allah because it is our conviction that Muhammad, his messengership, his prophethood, is a natural progression and a finalization of prophethood. And that he was prophesied by Jesus Christ, the son of Mary. And that he confirmed through his revelation and his conduct the life, the message, and the mission of Jesus Christ, the son of Mary. We say Muhammad Rasulullah, peace and blessing be upon him, because it is our conviction 
that the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessing be upon him, his life, his mission, and his message is this, the most profound for any human being whose life has been categorically recorded. And I'll repeat that. Whose life has been categorically documented and recorded. And we'll come back to that statement. Later on, we'll come back to that statement. I want you to remember that statement because I'm sure there are those who came here with a pocket full of challenges. And I got a few for you too. Islam has five fundamental pillars, the first of which is to bear witness that there is none to be worshipped except Almighty God, consistent with the first commandment given to Moses, consistent with the first commandment that Jesus Christ also said is the greatest of the commandments. Hear you, Israel, the Lord thy God is one, absolutely one, not the number one. Not the number one that could be divided into one, two, three. Not the number one that could be multiplied. But absolutely one, having no one besides, no other God besides. Hear ye, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy mind and all thy soul. And thou shalt not worship anyone except the Lord thy God nor bow down to any graven images in the heavens or the earth or the sea below. Such said Moses, and such said confirmed Jesus Christ, and such said the Quran. This is what we bear witness, and this is the first pillar of Islam, and the most important. The second pillar of Islam is to adopt the attitude and the habit of worship. Not thinking about God, not reflecting upon God, not merely meditating upon God, not just talking about God or singing about God, but worshiping God with a liturgy, with a formula, with a ritual that God ordered the prophets, peace and blessings be upon all of them. Now this is very important for us to understand that in Islam, we follow a prescribed liturgy. It would be referred to in some religions. A prescribed act of worship. Five times a day the Muslims wash and stand and bow and prostrate and call upon God with specific words asking for mercy, asking for guidance, asking for strength, asking for forgiveness asking for knowledge, asking for sincerity. But it is not an abstract bowing, standing, prostration. It's not something how I want to do it or how you would like to do it based upon my whim or my feeling or my abstract desire. No, it is a specific ritual of worship. For certainly, those of you who, who are educated you have a specific protocol attached to your profession. And you proceed to execute your, your profession with a procedure, ritualistically. And you have guidelines and you have protocols, how, when, what, where, that you do it. 
And from time to time, you also have to get training to upgrade. How then do the human beings think that they are more intelligent, more demanding amongst themselves, that for their profession, for their efficiency, for their proficiency, that they have established rules, rituals, protocols to address their administrators, their presidents, their family, their parents, their teachers, their professors. There are protocols, but God doesn't deserve a direct protocol. We can just think of God, meditate upon God. We can just sing about God. We can dance about God. We can whistle and clap. Or each one of us individually adopts our own way of worshiping gods. As if the prophets of Almighty God who were sent as messengers and prophets and guides and examples, they were not given a specific ritual system by which to communicate and to worship Almighty God. We reject that. We reject that completely. For if we examine the scriptures, we find that every prophet of God, every single prophet of God had a specific ritual, a manner of prayer, a time of prayer, a mode of prayer, words, special words in which they used to communicate with Almighty God. And each one of those prophets also, they did not speak to people or choose to guide people with their own words. Always the words they use to guide people and call people were words of scripture, which means divine revelation. Divine revelation. It means whatsoever they heard from God, whatever God inspired them to say, that's what they said. Such was the Torah of Moses. Such was the commandments of Moses. Such was the books of Abraham. Such was the Psalms of David. Such was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And such was the Quran revealed to the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessing be upon him. We Muslims are also ordered by Almighty God to take a portion of our wealth Wealth, and in Islam, wealth has a definition. The definition of wealth is what is what remains after you fulfill your needs. So Islam has a legislative definition of wealth. So whatever wealth that a Muslim has in their house, in their bank, which, they, which is owned by them, that amount of wealth that is sustained over a period of a year, whether it be $1,500 or $15,000 or $150,000, whichever amount of excess property or wealth that a Muslim sustains for at least one year, within that year, the Muslim has to pay 2.5% of that as a charity. It's not much. It's a symbol. It's a gesture. It's a contribution. It's a reminder that you have been endowed by Almighty God with what you have and there are others 
that you owe a part of that endowment to. It's called zakat. And so the Muslim has been ordered. This is not optional. It's mandatory to pay this two and a half percent. The fourth pillar is fasting during the month of Ramadan. Now the month of Ramadan is the ninth month of the lunar calendar. The lunar calendar. And in case you have a problem with that terminology, it means the calendar which is calculated by the movement of the moon as opposed to the movement of the earth around the sun. So we have commonly in the world today the Gregorian calendar and we have the lunar calendar. And there is a difference between the two. In the course of a year, the lunar calendar is 10 days shorter than the Gregorian calendar. It's not just a matter of choice. It's a determination that came to us from God and from revelation. And in the ninth month of the lunar calendar, the Muslim has been ordered by Almighty God to fast. Now fasting for us means abstaining from food and drink and sexual relationships. From the time of the light of the dawn until the setting of the sun. Not a long period of time, but a significant enough amount of time for the human being to learn discipline, self-control, and to develop a feeling a feeling of hunger and denial similar, not the same, but similar to other individuals throughout the earth who are fasting involuntarily. Now this ninth month of the lunar calendar also coincides with the time that the Quran was revealed to the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon him, 1424 years ago. It was in the month of Ramadan that the Quran was revealed that the angel Gabriel came to the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, and said those words, read in the name of your Lord, recite in the name of your Lord. Those five verses that came to us that began the revelation of the Quran and then culminated over a period of 23 years. So when we fast in the month of Ramadan, we do so because we consider it to be an order, a mandate from God, and that it is also a means by which to teach us self-discipline, self-control, sacrifice, denial. And during that month, we are spending more time reading the Quran that was revealed during this month, memorizing the Quran that was revealed during that month, reflecting upon the Quran, and standing in prayer while that Quran is recited. This is the significance. There are many benefits for fasting, many benefits. The people in the medical community can tell us, people in the psychological community can tell us, but that's not the reason why we fast. We're fasting because it's an order from God, and that fasting also is a discipline that all the prophets of Almighty God, they did, they exercised. The fifth pillar of Islam is performing the pilgrimage to Mecca. Mecca is a city in the Arabian Peninsula. A city that from time immemorial 
was known to be a sacred city. In other scriptures, it was referred to as Becca, or it was referred to as Paran in the Old Testament. A place where Abraham, the patriarch, our common father, the patriarch Abraham, a place where Abraham took his wife and his son by the order of Almighty God and settled them there in a desolate valley. And after some time, Abraham returned back to that desolate valley where he was ordered by God to leave his wife and son. And there in that desolate valley, Abraham built a building which is called the Kaaba. Kaaba in Arabic means cube. Kaaba means cube because it was a square-shaped building, a very simple building, a building maybe 18 feet, 20 feet high, and maybe 18 feet or 20 feet on each side, a simple building, not a building that God lives in, nor a sacred building itself, but something made of mud and stones, but a building that was ordered by Almighty God for Abraham to build and then go around it commemorating God. Not worshiping the building, but worshiping God, but setting up that building so that human beings would come from all over the earth and do what? Circumambulate around that building and praise Almighty God and call upon him with forgiveness and mercy and repeat the oneness and the glory of Almighty God. This Kaaba, all Muslims repeating this tradition of Abraham, reliving this tradition of Abraham. Every Muslim from wherever they are, China or Russia or Africa or America or Australia or from South America or wherever Muslims are, they have been ordered once in their lives, if they are able to do so, to go to Mecca and to experience the universal fraternity and to experience the tradition of Abraham. These are the five pillars of Islam. And Islam is built upon these five pillars. And each of these five pillars form the basis for the Muslim discipline, the Muslim ideology, the Muslim's relationship with Almighty God, and the disciplines that begin to shape and form the spiritual structure of the human being. Included in our faith system is the belief in angels. We believe in angels. We believe that the angel Gabriel came to all the prophets of Almighty God and that is the archangel of God. We believe that. We believe in all the divine scriptures. We believe that Almighty God we believe that God would create human beings and that he would not leave human beings without inspiration, guidance, a manual, no more so than any one of you would set up a company and create some machinery and people that work on that machinery and then market that machinery and not send along with that machinery a manual. And not also make available to those that purchase that machinery a technician.
No one would buy an automobile or a toaster, a computer or a telephone without asking for a manual or having some kind of a service number to call a technician or a warranty. Everyone would ask for it and everyone would expect it. And we think that the creator of the heavens and earth, who is the designer of everything and has created man as the ruler of this planet, the most sophisticated creature on this planet, would not communicate with man through man and give to him a manual by which to follow and send along with that manual prophets and messengers to act as technicians to explain to man that manual and the relationship of the one who sent. So we believe in divine scripture. We believe in all the prophets and messengers as extraordinary human beings sent by God. We believe in the day of judgment. We do believe, certainly, that life is very short. 60 years, 70 years, 100 years, or even in the case of Noah, 950 years. There's no doubt that human beings will die. Every single one of them will die. And if there's anyone here that's outside of that reality, they certainly have no need to hear this lecture because they're more exceptional, they're of a different species than we are. And since we know that we will die, and we know that we came into life, and we know that we were created, and this life was designed, and that this life is restricted, and that this life has a purpose, that there is some accountability for this living, Four, how would any one of you not think that there was accountability for life, but think there is accountability in your workplace? You have a supervisor, there's accountability there. You have children, and they are accountable. Teachers have students, and they are accountable. So there is accountability in every area of life. How then would we think, as human beings, that we would be created and live and given the gift of choice, volition, and there would be no accountability. There is accountability. That accountability according to scripture is that the creator of life and death has the ability to bring the human beings back to judgment even after their dust and bones. Now those of you who are intelligent, sophisticated, who would think that to be an impossibility or just some kind of a theory, well, I call your attention to take a look at the earth. From time to time, the seasons change. And you see the earth, one time, is full of life, blossoms, fruits, greenery. Then the season change, and the earth is barren, bearing no fruit at all, for some time. And then rain comes from the sky, and the earth is energized, brought back to life with new fruits and new grass and a new season.
is not the one who created the heavens and the earth, who is able to do that, is not the one that created the human beings from the very beginning, able to do that, is, the, is not the one who created everything from water, able to bring that water, that human being, or that earth back to life after it was dead? We say yes, definitely. The one who is the creator of the beginning has the ability to create howsoever he pleases. We believe that Almighty God and only Almighty God has the decree. To do whatsoever he pleases and gives to human beings a small amount of decree. That is, you and I, we do have the choice to accept or to reject. We even have the choice to take our own lives. It is not our right, but it is our choice. We have the choice to earn our living in a dignified way, or we have our choice to earn our living in an immoral way. We have a choice between right and wrong. We have a choice to be decent, dignified, and honest. Or we have the choice to be criminals. But the choices that we have, so many that they are, they are limited. Definitely limited. They're limited in time. They're limited in scope. They're limited in number. Why? Because the human being is not a creature that is born with unlimited anything. And finally, we believe, as the Quran sets forward for us, that inevitably, man has been created and put on this earth only for a test, a determination, to give him or her the opportunity to perform to display, to obey, to acknowledge, to submit, to pass a test. And after some time, you will be taken out of this earth, you will be judged, and then you will be given a new life in a different place according to the actions that you did. Now we understand this in earthly terms. We understand that Criminals, when they are indicted and convicted, we understand and we accept that criminals are placed in jails. We understand that and a human being, if they are diagnosed with some disease, we place them in a hospital. Once they are diagnosed, they're put there for treatment. We understand that. We understand also that we go to school to graduate and that we work to get paid. We also understand that we are all striving for happiness. Ultimately, every human being wants happiness. Almighty God said, ultimately, happiness is not on the earth. You will not achieve ultimate happiness on the earth in the same way that a murderer, a mass murderer, will not receive ultimate punishment on the earth by his fellow human beings. Cannot. There's another ultimate punishment and there's an ultimate reward. The ultimate punishment is hellfire. God is enough to create a hellfire just like God is enough to create a paradise. 
And if you can examine the depths of the heavens that we have not seen, but you know it is there, then you can imagine that if God said there's a hellfire and that there's a paradise, if God said that's what it is and that's where the ultimate rewards will be given and the ultimate punishments will be given, we believe. And we believe upon God, not we don't believe upon what we say. We believe upon God and we believe upon that because all the prophets and messengers who came from God, they said that. Now, brothers and sisters, I'm sure that many of you, in your preconditioned understanding of what Islam is, Many of you have heard or you've been told that Muslims are terrorists. Muslims are fanatics. Muslims are heretics. Muslims are extremists. Muslims are murderers. Muslims are hostage takers. This is what you've been told. And I'll tell you that in some cases that is true. There have been, certainly, some Muslims, not just recently, but even before newspapers and the media came about, there have been some Muslims who were the meaner element of the Muslims who have done those kinds of things, certainly. But then let's be objective. Let us go to history and be objective. Have not Jews and Christians also done those things and are they not also doing those things yes they are a criminal is a criminal a sinner is a sinner but you would never see in the media a Christian pedophile you would never see a pedophile called a Christian pedophile you will never see a murderer called a Christian murderer or a Jewish murderer. Timothy McVeigh wasn't called a Christian terrorist. Charles Manson wasn't called a Christian mass murderer. The IRA is not referred to as a Christian terrorist organization. Yet they are in fact committing and they have committed some of the gravest repugnant crimes but they're not referred to as Christian terrorists Christian fanatics then I ask why why when a Muslim is accused maybe not even indicted maybe not even convicted but if a Muslim is simply accused of something he is called a Islamic fundamentalist Islamic fanatic Islamic Muslim terrorists. Why? Because the media is controlled by people who want to malign Muslims and Islam. And I say that's unfair. While yes, that is true, that some Muslims themselves are responsible for some of the distortions about Islam. Some of the distortions about Islam, some of the misconceptions about Islam is as a result of the misbehavior of some Muslims, and that is to be fair and objective.
But I think if you examine history and you ask yourself the question, who perpetuated the international slave trade that resulted in 80 million people being traded like hogs and dogs over a 400 year period of time. This wasn't Muslims, but they weren't called Christian fanatics, although certainly those were, that was Portugal, Spain, America, Great Britain, France, all Christian countries and collaborated with the Catholic Church. When the conquistadors went into South America and ravaged that country, killed and slaughtered the people, poisoned the natural resources, they were blessed by the church. And they're still blessed by the church. And nobody called them Christian terrorists. When the first settlers came to this country, there were people living here, in case you don't know that. Nobody discovered a country where people were already living. I can't come to your house and just set up home in your house and say I discovered it and put you out. There were people living here who are now called Aborigines, a very nice word, Aborigines. It's like the native Indians in America. They're called the native Indians. They're not called Americans. They're called native Indians. This is because Christopher Columbus, he sailed looking for India. <laughs> and he wound up in what is now called the Americas, but the audacity and the chauvinism. See how chauvinistic the people are. Even though they knew it wasn't India, still how chauvinistic they are, they still call the people Indians. <laughs> and today, they call them natural, they call them native Indians, but they call themselves Americans. And today, you call the native people here Aborigines and you call yourself Australians. Now how this country was taken, you were not invited here, but it was taken with blood and slaughter. Terrorism in its purest form, but nobody called those people Christian terrorists. And now that you have sophisticated civilization here, Sydney, Australia, Brisbane, Australia, Melbourne, Australia, I mean, you know, down under you got this, you had the Olympics here, it's all forgotten about now. And still terrorism by governments still go on. And I don't say that. Terrorism by governments or individuals is right or moral. It is not. It is not. But we can't on one hand call some people in Afghanistan or some people in Chechnya or some people in Kashmir or some people in Palestine or some people in Somalia or some people in some other part of Africa or some other people in Indonesia. You can't call them terrorists because they are seeking freedom from oppression when you justify in your own history that you did the same thing but you glorify it and you justify it now. It's not fair. 
I say that a crime is a crime, whether it's done by some uneducated, unsophisticated people or some very educated and sophisticated people. A crime of government is just as bad as a crime of the individual. Yet the crimes of governments, they go unchecked because governments have power and there's nobody that can check them. But individuals, governments can hunt them down and put them in check. So I say that this issue that Islam or Muslims being fanatics, that this is unfair. Islam is a system of faith. It is a global system of faith. In fact, in case you don't know this, one out of every five people in this world is a Muslim. A person who submits and accepts the basis of the five pillars of Islam and its belief system. And these Muslims are not in Arabia riding horses and swords and turbans and telling everybody to submit or die. No. All Arabs are not Muslims and all Muslims are not Arabs. In fact, only 19% of the Muslim world are Arabs. There are Muslims in every continent of the world. There are Muslims in over 53 countries of the world. And there are 23 countries of the world that have major populations of Muslims. As a matter of fact, the larger population of Muslims on the earth, they're not Arabs at all. It's Indonesia, your neighbor. They're the largest population of Muslims in the world. And what we all have in common as Muslims is that we, we bear witness that there's none to be worshipped except Almighty God. And that Muhammad is the messenger of God. And we adopt these five pillars. And we adopt and we reflect in our lives the faith system of Islam. And Islam has a history. 1,424 years ago the Quran was revealed. The Prophet was born 570 AD, that is after Jesus Christ, the son of Mary. In the year 610, the Prophet, in the year 623, the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, passed away. 30 years after the death of the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, those desert Arabs, those illiterate people, in an inconsequential place of the earth, those people developed a new civilization through this Quran and through the behavior of that Prophet. And the three powers of that age, the three great civilizations, Rome, Persia, Abyssinia, they were replaced 30 years after the Quran was revealed. And for 1,000 years after the Quran was revealed, Muslim civilization dominated the earth. And dominated how? Through science, through art, through culture, through government, through institutions that are still intact today. And it was through this Quran that what the Western world refers to as the Renaissance or the Age of Enlightenment, where did it come from? Where did this Age of Enlightenment come from? It came from the art and the culture and the language and the behavior and the scientific explorations of the Quran and the Muslim civilizations. 
So Islam is a global faith with a long history and is based upon the Qur'an and the behavior of the Prophet And what is our ambition as Muslims? Our ambition as Muslims is that we believe that the Qur'an is the book of God and this should be the legislation of the earth. That's our belief. We cannot force this upon anyone, but this is our belief. We believe that the life of the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, is the most profound, categorically documented life for all human beings. And we challenge any human being to produce the biography of a person whose life is documented, that's number one, and categorically more profound than that of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessing be upon him. We challenge anybody. Be it your father, your grandfathers, your teachers, your professors, your, 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 your favorite uh, cricket team, or whomever you want to choose. Whoever your idol is. Whoever your mentor is. And I refer you to one of the premier biographers of the world, who among five biographers within the same year tackled the challenge of finding who are the 100 most profound human beings in history. This is a recent project. And Michael H. Hart, you can write that name down. Michael H. Hart, one of the premier biographers of this age, he compiled 100 names biographies and he studied them closely and he set a criteria for them to determine which of them had the most profound impact upon humanity in the documented history and he admitted clearly that his first choice would have been Jesus Christ the son of Mary no doubt because he's a Christian but what he had to examine categorically, Jesus Christ was not a father. He was not a husband. He was not a statesman. And he was not a ruler. He did not leave a government. He did not leave a legislation. Therefore, in six categories, he said, I could not choose Jesus Christ. And that is being objective. The only person he said he could choose that fit all of these categories above all the other personalities that he examined was Muhammad ibn Abdullah. Muhammad, the prophet of Islam. Now mind you, Michael J. Hart wasn't brainwashed. No one stood over him while he wrote with a sword or a pistol and told him, choose Islam or choose Muhammad or die. No, he wrote as a professional. He wrote as an intellectual. He wrote as a scholar. He wrote as a Christian. He wrote as a human being. He wrote as a biographer and he wrote as an objective person. His findings were published in the New York Times, in the Reader's Digest, 
and you'll find it in the libraries all over the world. And he gave his own criteria for why he chose Muhammad, peace and blessing be upon him. I say, each one of you, you should take the same criteria or another criteria and do what Michael J. Hart did and what some others did. And by the way, Michael J. Hart was not refuted by his contemporaries. His findings are clear. But we don't need, as Muslims, we don't need Michael H. Hart to say that for us. The Quran said, لَقَدْ كَانَ لَكُمْ فِي رَسُولُ اللَّهِ أُسْوَةٌ حَسَنًا لِمَنْ كَانَ يَرْجُ اللَّهُ وَالْيَوْمِ الْأَخْرِ وَالْذَكْرُ اللَّهُ كَثِيرًا So certainly there is for you, O oh human beings, in the Messenger of God, Muhammad wasallam, peace and blessings be upon him, the most profound pattern of human behavior for anyone who fears Almighty God and who anticipates their meeting with Almighty God and remembers Almighty God much and often. Our ambition and our conviction is that the Quran, the revealed book of Almighty God, revealed to the Prophet Muhammad, is the final testimony from God and not only a scripture to be read for rituals, but a scripture that was given for legislation and regulation of the affairs of human beings in every area of the human drama. That's our conviction. It is our conviction that the life of the Prophet, peace and blessings be upon him, covers every area of the human being's behavior and offers a solution, an etiquette, a principle of behavior that if followed will be found to be superior to any other form of social behavior. It is our conviction that Islam as a system, as a faith, is a system that offers to humanity a comprehensive legislation, a comprehensive worship, a comprehensive means by which to bond the human beings together, a platform for government, a platform for resolving the problems of humanity, a system of peace, if given the chance to be studied and implemented. This is our conviction. Of course, we don't have the right to force our convictions upon anyone. There is no compulsion in religion or anything else. God has given you and me the choice to think, to choose, to determine, to select. But we Muslims have the right to feel that the Quran is the book of Almighty God and that it offers a legislation and an inspiration to all the human beings and to offer that. We Muslims have the right, like anyone else, to believe that the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessing be upon him, is not a prophet sent to the Arabs, but that he is, as the Quran said, وَمَا أَرْسَرْنَاكَ إِلَّا رَحْمَةٍ لِلْعَالَمِينَ Oh Muhammad, you have been sent as a mercy to the entire human beings. No other prophet was sent to all the human beings. They were sent to their own nation, their own people. We have the right to say to you and to invite you to look, examine, categorically research 
objectively consider the life of Muhammad, peace and blessing be upon him, if you will. And we have the right as Muslims to offer to the world what we consider to be an alternative to the immorality and the decadence, to the irreligiousness and the hedonism, to the materialism and the godlessness that is being spread through the earth as the greatest amount of vermin and disease by those who call themselves the most sophisticated people in the world. We have a right to offer Islam as an alternative. And this is what we do. We don't say to you, non-Muslims, we don't say you should be Muslim, we don't say you ought to be Muslim, we don't say you must be Muslims, we put the proposition to you that if you've never considered Islam, you should. And even if you never intend to consider Islam to be a choice for you, I think that it is reasonable for us to say, if there are 1.6, 1.4 billion people in the world that are Muslims, all over the world, it should be a system of faith that I think you should be familiar with, and you should be familiar with it not from preconditioning or prejudice, but you should be familiar with it from interest, inquisition, research, academia, to know, to be fair, to be objective, so that if you are asked about Islam, if you are asked about Muslims, if you are asked about the Qur'an, if you are asked about the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessing be upon him, you will speak the truth and what is accurate and fair as you would about your mother. And as you would want to be spoken about your mother. Because your mother is sacred to you. And mine is sacred to me. Your faith is sacred to you and my faith is sacred to me. I would want and you would want the accurate information to be related, if any information is related at all, about our mothers, or about ourselves, or about our faith. This is what we want to say to you. Now, those people who came here with a pocket full of criticisms, condemnations, or a pocket full of vomit, about their preconditioned prejudices and condemnations about Islam, I say to you, I won't consider answering that here in this venue. But what I will do is, if you are intellectual enough and organized enough, write down your contentions about the Quran. Write down your contentions about Islam. And write down your contentions about the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessing be upon him. And then give those to me. If I have to stay in Sydney, Australia for another three days, I'll do that. If I'm in, in, in Melbourne, I'll stay here another day or come back. And I will meet you on television, radio, in a venue like this. And you can bring your professor, your minister, or whomsoever. And we will discuss your contentions, nothing else. We won't discuss your religion, and you don't have to discuss my religion. We only will discuss your contentions. That's it. Now is that fair enough? Because if you have contentions, I don't have any contentions about Jesus Christ. 
I don't have any contention about Jesus Christ or his message or his mission or whom he was. I have a conviction about him. And I love Jesus Christ. And I contend with those who call themselves Christians. I contend with you. I compete with you in, 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 in my love for Jesus Christ and my attachment to his message and his mission. But no. I don't say that blasphemy against God. I don't put forward and perpetuate that lie concerning Jesus Christ. He never said that he is God and Jesus Christ never said worship me. So I don't say Jesus is God nor do I say that we should worship Jesus Christ. And Jesus Christ never asked anybody to call themselves Christians either just in case you don't know that. He was the Christ. In Arabic it's called Masih. Masih or Messiah. It means anointed or appointed or selected or touched by God. Yes, he was. He was touched by God. He was appointed by God. He was anointed by God. He was selected by God. And he said, I can of my own self do nothing. But whatsoever I am ordered from the one on high, that is what I do. He said, in his prayer, called the Lord's Prayer. My Father, who art in heaven. Our Father, who art in heaven. Meaning God the sustainer. Who art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. He didn't say my name or our name. Thy kingdom come. Not my kingdom come or our kingdom come. Thy will be done. Not my will be done or our will be done. On earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. Give us. This is Jesus talking now. Give us this, daily this day our daily bread. Give who? Give me and my mother and all of us our daily bread. And certainly, if God gave him daily bread, which he asked for, God also gave him daily drink. Because you can't swallow bread without drinking. And if Jesus Christ and his mother, if they ate bread and drank water, their bodies used whatever part was nutritious, and their bodies evacuated what was waste. Now, can you imagine God defecating and urinating this is what Jesus said give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our trespasses as we forgive those that trespass against us it's Jesus prayer don't be aggravated with me I'm reminding you of the Lord's prayer because I was a Christian born a Christian and I memorized this prayer and I know it very well and it is consistent with a prophet and a messenger who made that prayer. And deliver us from evil. Deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom. Not mine is the kingdom. Not ours is the kingdom. But thine is the kingdom. Forever and ever. Amen. This is the Lord's prayer. We have a love for Noah. Abraham, 
Moses, Zechariah, David, Solomon, Isaac, Ismael, Jacob, Lot, John, Jesus the Christ, and Muhammad, peace and blessings be upon all of them. And they all were servants of God, servants who submitted their wills to God. And the word Muslim means a servant or one that submits themselves to God. By that definition, Abraham was a Muslim. Moses was a Muslim. Solomon and David were Muslims. Isaac, Ismail, and Jacob were Muslims. John the Baptist, the son of Zechariah. Jesus, the son of Mary. And Muhammad, the son of Abdullah. All of them were servants of Almighty God. And all of them were Muslims. And it wasn't until 354 years after Jesus Christ, at the Council of Nicaea, that the pagan idolaters and Romans determined that Jesus Christ was the man God. And they were the ones that brought about the idea of Trinity, Sonship, and Divinity of Jesus Christ. 354 years after Jesus Christ, that's almost 400 years. Jesus Christ himself had nothing to do with the Trinity. And Jesus Christ himself had nothing to do with divinity being placed upon him. And Jesus Christ had nothing to do with calling himself the Son of God, except that he used a generality. The metaphor that all of us are metaphorically, allegorically, the sons of God, sons and daughters. Not that God had a son begat, God gave birth. But if you remember in the Old Testament, God said, Isaiah is my son. God said that Abraham even is my son. God said that David is my son. God mentioned this not because they were born of God, but it means son means chosen. Chosen by God. Selected by God. A person dedicated to God, whom God loves and God blesses. By that definition, God had sons by the tons. As such, Jesus Christ was not the exclusive Son of God, if we want to use that terminology at all. But Jesus called himself the Son of Man. That's what he called himself. He was called that rabbi, that man from Nazareth. And his followers were called Nazarenes. They never called themselves Christians. It was at the Council of Nicaea that this word Christianity was determined. And so whoever adopted the new Nicaean creed became Christians. And those who did not were Nazarenes and they were killed. We believe that Jesus Christ was born without the introduction of sperm. We believe that because God creates what he wills. We believe that God created Adam, no father and mother. We believe that God created his mate, Eve. We believe. And God says in the Quran, when they ask thee about Jesus Christ, say, the likeness of Jesus is the likeness of Adam. God created both of them from dust and his word. And he said, be, and they became. This is our belief. That if God created Adam, and he had no mother and father, and his mate, and she had no mother and father. 
then why is it difficult for us to believe and understand and accept that God created Jesus Christ with no father but had a mother? This is our belief. We believe that Jesus Christ spoke from the cradle and performed many miracles. Yes, he raised the dead. He caused the blind to see. He healed the lepers. He fed the multitudes. 10,000 people from seven loaves of, of bread and seven fish. Yes. Yes, he took a clay pigeon and blew into it and it flew away. But he said he did this by the leave and the power of God. And when he was called good master by someone, he said, why dost thou call me good master when there's none good except the one that is in heaven? We believe that Jesus Christ was one of the most great and powerful prophets and messenger of Almighty God, but that did not make him a man God or a God man. Such is the elevated position of Jesus Christ in the faith of Islam. Dear Muslims, you have an obligation to convey the correct posture and principles of Islam to your neighbors, to your colleagues, and to your co-workers. Through your behavior more so than through your dialect. Because Islam, after all, is not just an issue of talking. There is a behavior attached to it. There's a human example attached to it. And we want people to understand Islam from the scriptural part, view and context, but we also want people to understand Islam from the human context of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessing be upon him. So, O Muslims, you have the obligation to convey this to your neighbors, your colleagues, and your co-workers. And for the non-Muslims, I invite you I invite you to reflect and to consider, to research objectively, with an open heart, with an open mind, the evidence which I have shared with you. And since most of you have computers, I dare you. Go home and look up the word Quran. The reference that you will find is not written by Muslims. Look up the word Muhammad ibn Abdullah. Muhammad bin Abdullah. Look it up. The reference you will find is not written by Muslims. And look up the word Islam. The historical reference you will find in most cases is not written by Muslims. But there are authoritative, documented sources given to you, thousands, that will lead you to the information that I have shared with you tonight, although they are non-Muslims. Because the reference is the same. The Quran is a scripture that can be read by anyone. And for your information, the Quran is the only scripture on the earth that is intact as it was revealed, 6,626 6, verses revealed 1,424 years ago, over a period of 23 years, intact today, recited by all Muslims. 
memorized by millions of Muslims. There's probably at least one or two Muslims in this room, a child or an adult, that has memorized the entire Quran as it was memorized in the life of the Prophet before he passed away. And the proof of that is that of the Christians, if the Christians all over the world wanted to prove this issue, we could do it easily. All the Christians all over the world choose a day and throw all the Bibles away, throw them all in the ocean, and then see if you can reproduce the Bible. You cannot, because it's not agreed upon what the Bible is. But if all the Qur'ans, all the Muslims everywhere in the world chose a day and threw away all the Qur'ans, in any gathering, we could stand up and recite the Qur'an from Al-Fatiha, Bismillahir Rahmanir Rahim. Alhamdulillahi Rabbil Alameen, Ar-Rahman Ar-Rahim Maliki Yawmiddin. Iyaka na'budu wa iyaka nasta'in, ihdina siratul mustaqim. Siratul ladhina anamta alayhim, ghayrul madhubi alayhim waladhalim, the first chapter. All the way up to the last, the 114th chapter, قُلْ أَعُوذُ بِرَبِّ النَّاسِ مَلِكِ النَّاسِ إِلَاهِ النَّاسِ مِنْ شَرِّ الْوَسْوَاسِ الْخَنَّاسِ أَلَّذِي يُوَسْوِسُ فِي سُدُورِ النَّاسِ مِنَ الْجِنَّةِ وَالنَّاسِ We could recite all 114 right here if you had the time. And bring the Quran right back, just like that. There's no other scripture in the world where that could be done. If there's no other miracle of Muhammad, peace and blessing be upon him, it's the miracle of the Quran. We invite you to consider the validity of Islam, the proposition of Islam, the decency and the dignity of Islam. We don't ask you, we don't say to you, you should be Muslim, you must be Muslim. We say that Islam is a proposition for you to consider. Okay, um, the question is, and I appreciate very much, um, I won't say everything she said, and I thank you very much for your compliment. But her question is, she'd like to know what um, the Qur'an says regarding the treatment of women. Because of the fact that there's obviously, in the world today, uh, some mistreatment of women in Muslim countries. Uh, on one count, I say to you, this is correct. Uh, I have visited at, uh, about 23 countries that have major Muslim populations, and in some of those countries I have found that to be the case. Mistreatment of women based upon culture, not based upon Islam, based upon the culture of people. What the Quran says is that, يَا أَيُّهَا النَّاسُ تَكُوا رَبُّكُمُ الَّذِي خَلَقَكُمْ مِنْ نَفْسٍ وَاحِدًا And I'll recite the Arabic and then translate it for you. وَخَلَقَ مِنْهَا زَوْجَهَا وَبَثَ مِنْهُ رَرِجَالًا كَثِيرًا وَنِسَاءً وَتَكُوا اللَّهُ الَّذِي تَسَاءَلُونَ بِهِ وَالْأَرْحَامُ إِنَّ اللَّهَ كَانَ عَلَيْكُمْ رَقِيبًا The Quran says, and this is one verse, O mankind, give reverence to your guardian Lord, Almighty God, who created you from one single soul. So the first position that God says to us is that he created male and female from what? One single soul. And created its mate. So created Adam and created 
his mate. From what? One soul. And from those two, a countless number of men and women. Then he says, you should fear God or be mindful of God and his legislation as regards to the demands that you make of one another. This means the demands that's made between the husband and wife or the people who are together. That means the basis of their relationship should be the legislation of God, not the legislation of men. And you should give reverence to the wombs that bore you life. Who is that? The mothers. So in this verse, God is telling us two things. One, that the relationship between the male and the female, in terms of their essence, they are equal in the sight of God. That's number one. Equal in the sight of God. We don't say the same. They're not evidently not the same. I mean, in the Western world, we are led to think that they are the same, and some men and women are undergoing operations to become the same. <laughs> but they are not the same. The male and the female are not the same psychologically, they are not the, name, the same physiologically, and they don't have the same social roles. But they are equal in the sight of God. Then God goes on to say, Fear Allah by whom you demand from each other your rights. So God says, be mindful of his legislation and his justice by whom you demand your rights. What kind of rights? Marital rights, here it means. My rights as a husband doesn't originate from me. And my wife's rights as a woman, as a female, or as a wife, doesn't originate from herself. I'm not the one that gives her her rights. She's not the one that gives me my rights. The one that gives both of us our rights is the legislation of God. But then God says on top of that, for us men to give reverence to the wombs that gave you life. Who is the wombs that gave us life? Our mothers. And if we reverence our mothers, we have to reverence our sisters. If we reverence our sisters, we have to reverence our wives and our daughters because all of them inevitably will be mothers. The other thing is that Allah, peace and blessing, uh, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has ordered for us and outlined for us all the rights. The rights of inheritance, the rights of treatment, the rights of worship, the specific roles. God says in the Quran, Men are the maintainers, the protectors of women. What this basically means is that in Islam, the woman doesn't have to work. She doesn't have to earn a living for herself. She doesn't have to. The husband cannot order her to wash the dishes, wash the clothes, iron his clothes, fix his food. He can't order her to do anything. But God has ordered him, on the contrary, to maintain her. And she doesn't have to work at all. Because God said, But God has given to the women one of the gravest tasks. One is one they cannot avoid unless they take their uterus out, and that is having children. That is the task that God has given to women to bear children. Now, that doesn't mean that is their only task, but that is a task they cannot avoid. And that task of having children 
Men certainly couldn't do it, even if they wanted to. If a man tried to have a child, he would die. And if he did have a child, psychologically, he would never be able to deal with children the way that women do. But God has given the women the capacity to have children, to take care of those children, and in many cases, take care of their husband, themselves, and other people's children, because they have the psychological capacity to do that. This is the gift that God gave to women. To be what? To be the hands that rock the cradle of civilization. All prophets had mothers. And all prophets were children at one time, and they were nurtured by their mothers. So in Islam, the position of a woman is that of sensitivity one of sanctity. Now if there are Muslims who don't respect women because of their culture, whether it's Arab culture, whether it is Asian culture, whether it is African culture, or there is American culture, any other culture, that is not an indictment against Islam. That's an indictment against those Arabs or those Africans or those Asians or those who disrespect women. But let's bring this issue up. Let me bring up this issue. As a sociologist, because my academic background is that, as a sociologist, there are a few statistics I want to share with you relative to the treatment of women. Now, you know, in the Western civilization, you know, we're always talking about how sophisticated we are, uh, how um, principled we are, how educated we are how civilized that we are, and therefore we want to go throughout the world straightening out everybody else's uh, human injustices. But let's talk about the injustice. I'm going to give you a few statistics that might suggest that in Western civilization there's a few fires that need to be put out before people start going other places putting out fires. Between the USA and the UK, I don't have the statistics for Australia, but I'm sure they would also be interesting to know. There are between the USA and the UK 357,000 legal abortions every year. This means individuals who chose, in most cases, of course in some extraordinary cases it might have resulted, a pregnancy might have came through rape, because that's another statistic I'm going to share with you. But in most cases, pregnancy that occurred as a result of the choice of two individuals who afterwards decided, maybe one of them decided, but decided afterwards they didn't want that child. So they aborted that child, and today, over 357,000 unwanted children are aborted anywhere between the fourth week and the eighth week of pregnancy. And those are children, those are human beings. We know now from an embryological study that those are human beings. 
yet they are killed and they are murdered because the human beings who entered this relationship decided that they don't want that responsibility so they kill it so that they don't have to face that responsibility that is an indecency that is an immorality that is a great oppression not only against women but against those children and what kind of a psychology does that create for women who have in the west most women before before they are 30 years old in the western hemisphere they said that three out of ten women between the USA and the UK, three out of ten have at least two abortions before they're 30 years old. The other thing is, the Western countries that claim to be the champions of social justice and the freedom and liberation of women, they are the ones who promote and license 24 million women who prostitute themselves. Can you imagine that? 24 million women between the USA and the UK who have licenses to prostitute. Another 83 million that dance in nightclubs naked for men who just go there for their enjoyment. Does that sound like a civilized place? Does that sound like a civilized Society, that's something like a society has in their hearts the humanity for women. Every 39 seconds in America and the UK, every 39 seconds, a woman is raped, forcibly raped. Seven out of ten of those rapes are never investigated. Four out of ten never even reported. Now I ask, when you think about the so-called inhumanity towards women in Afghanistan and the inhumanity towards women in Saudi Arabia and the inhumanity towards women in India or Africa or Somalia or wherever else that we want to liberate these women from, do these same statistics exist? Absolutely not. By two, by seven people I spoke to, was like running at eight percent young women are prostitutes. Yeah. I would agree with you, excuse me, I would agree with you when it comes to Morocco, but I didn't name Morocco. Just just a moment. I didn't name Morocco. No, no, it's not a Muslim country at all. Okay? The countries that we are preoccupied today with liberating about the issue of uh, uh, oppression against women is not Morocco. The countries that we are engaged in trying to liberate and talk about oppression against women today, the countries that are spoken about are Afghanistan, the country that is spoken about is Saudi Arabia, the spoke country that is spoken about is Pakistan and India. These are the countries that are commonly spoken about. Now, Morocco has long since been a haven for drugs, prostitution, but I remind you, that Morocco was colonized by, the, by Portugal and Spain and they brought prostitution and drugs into Morocco. So I agree with you, I've been there. But that's not the preoccupation in the countries that we're talking about. Now let me use those few countries that are commonly pointed at. The Afghani women, 
Did any Afghani women themselves ask America to come there and liberate them? Absolutely not. They didn't. Did any Saudi women, I'm not talking about the ones that escaped from Saudi Arabia, and maybe rightfully so, but did women in Saudi Arabia rally, write, protest, and ask? Because I lived there. Well, excuse me, because uh, I think I said previously, and brothers and sisters, please, uh, if a person makes a statement, first, uh, if, you got, if you have a question, you have to ask me. If I'm a little long-winded, that's, my, that's, my, uh, that's a little bit of my priority, I think, my protocol or my uh, uh, preference. But just raise your hand and I'll recognize you. The other thing is, anyone that asks a question, uh, I'm not a stand-up comic here, so I'm not saying things uh, as a comedian. And we should be patient, tolerant, and we should be respectful. If a person asks a question or makes a statement that we don't agree with, we shouldn't laugh. The prophet didn't teach us that. We should be tolerant and listen to what she has to say, and I'll answer to the best of my ability. And I don't have all the answers. I have the answers from my experience, from my exposure, to the best of my ability. And I'm trying to be fair and objective. That is, where there's an indictment against Muslims, I'm going to say what I saw, and I'm going to agree. But that is not an indictment against Islam because Islam doesn't accept that. The punishment in Islam for a man prostituting a woman is death. Now you may say that's inhuman, but that's why there's a difference in Islam from Islamic constitution, Islamic civilization, and others because in Islam it's not tolerated. Now, Muslims who do it are criminals. Muslim countries that do it are criminal countries and deviant countries. And there are many of them, definitely. But that's not an indictment against Islam. What I'm speaking about is, what is the treatment? And my sister, she asked, what is the treatment of women according to the Quran? Women are mothers. They are sisters. They are daughters. They are wives. They are human beings. And they have the same rights in the sight of God as men have. And socially, their rights are even more than men in some cases because they are the hands that prepare the future generations. Now that's what the Quran tells us. Now if Muslims don't act that way in some cases, that's not an indictment against Islam. I suppose all I objected to was the uh, suggestion that only Western countries have prostitution and have abortion and have all of these things when the treatment of women as prostitutes is endemic across all cultures and all civilizations. So singling out Western countries. Well I only single it out I only single it out because Western countries have the most glaring statistics of prostitution. Western civilization have the most glaring statistics of pedophilia. Western civilization have the most glaring statistics when it comes to the addiction of drugs. Western civilization has the most glaring statistics when it comes to the addiction of alcohol. Western civilization has the most glaring statistics when it comes to people addicted to cigarette smoking. And the cigarette production started in Western civilization. Western civilization has the most glaring statistics when it comes to murders, homicides. Western civilization has the most glaring statistics when it comes to armed robbery. Western civilization have the most glaring statistics when it comes to children born out of wedlock, children that don't know who their father is, 
Western civilization has the most glaring statistics when it comes to people who are locked up in industrial complexes called prisons. Western civilization. And I only point out Western civilization because they claim to be the champions of human, uh, human justice, social justice. Uh, they claim to be that. And they go all over the world, policing the world, or polluting the world, whichever we want to say. Now, if they didn't make such claims, I wouldn't point them out. I would simply say that these are statistics that we find everywhere in the world, but these are statistics that found themselves most glaring in the sophistication of Western civilization. And, in most cases, began, the in industry of it began, and then was transported into those countries. And you only have to be a student of history to know that. You only have to be a student of history to understand that. So I'm being critical where I think it's necessary to be critical only to say that it is not fair for people who consider themselves to be educated, sophisticated, westernized, modern, or whatever the case might be, while it's evident that Western civilization, I'll give you another statistic that you need to know. Suicide, suicide is it's in its highest, highest rate in the Western civilizations than it is anywhere in the world. This is people who should be satisfied, happy, stable, educated, but they're not. Disparagement, depression, anxiety, and suicide is witnessed more in the Western civilizations than anywhere in the world. Now these are sociological statistics. I don't say that this, these, this doesn't exist in other places, but why should it exist in the place where people are supposed to be the champions of human rights, social justice, who are offering to the world their new world order, and who say that Women are mistreated in other places, yet the greatest disparagement. Where in the world do you find naked women on a billboard, which even children can see, selling a candy bar? I mean, it's just absurd. If we want to talk about oppression and the, uh, the indignity and indecency and the oppression and exploitation of women from the time that they are young, nowhere is it personified greater than it is in the Western civilization. Uh, when it comes to phenomena that God gave to prophets, and we don't mean feats that are performed, uh, sleight of hand feats or healing that's uh, allegedly performed by um, evangelists and uh, healers and uh, people of that nature. We're talking about phenomena that were given to prophets, raising the dead, causing the blind to see. Um, we don't find anybody today doing that. If that were the case, if there is a person who is able to do that, they should go to Africa and they should save the 46,000 people that are dying from the AIDS virus, put their hands on them. <laughs> and just to, by the way, let you know another contribution of Western civilization, the AIDS virus was developed in America by five countries, 
63,000 gallons of the AIDS virus was produced in America and graciously inoculated upon the people of Africa along with vaccines of yellow fever and malaria, another gift of Western civilization. So uh, uh, basically, just to answer your question, um, we say that we believe in the phenomenon given to Jesus Christ that it was given by God and not of his own power. This is the point that I was trying to make. Uh, yes, sir. The Hajj al-Aswad, Hajj al-Aswad is just a stone. That's all it is. It's nothing more. There's no phenomena. There's no spookism. There's no um, spirituality. There's no mythology or anything attached to it. And I'll say it best in the, in the speech, uh, in the words of one of the followers of the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him. When he was going around the Kaaba, he stopped by the Hajj al-Aswad, the black stone. And he said, O stone, O black stone, you are only a stone. And there's no benefit or no harm in you. And if I didn't see the prophet kissing you, I would not kiss it. So the kissing of the, of the black stone is for what? It's only symbolic. doesn't mean anything. Nobody has received any benefit. Nobody has is, is, is caused any harm. Nobody has cured. It's nothing. It's only a symbol. Nothing. For us, even the Kaaba itself. Somebody calls it a holy Kaaba. It is not the Holy Kaaba. It is only the Kaaba. Nothing holy about it. Uh, let me answer a couple of questions that came. Um, and the person who wrote this, you, you asked three questions. Um, but they're, they're pretty short, so I'll answer all three for you. How can you be so sure that the Quran has not been changed? One test. The Quran revealed over a period of 23 years, 6,626 verses. In the life of the Prophet, at least eight, nine, and some, uh, some historians said that 14 of the companions of the Prophet memorized. We know at least eight of them. Under the supervision of the Prophet himself. The Prophet himself, the angel Gabriel, came to him at different periods of time, had him to rehearse the Quran. The Prophet sat with his companions, had them to reverse, rehearse the Quran. So before the Prophet passed away, there were several people who memorized the entire Quran, recited the entire Quran at separate times in the company of the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him. After the Prophet passed away, this tradition was continued all the way up until today. That Quran that was memorized in the time of the Prophet, peace and blessing be upon him, more than 1400 years ago, is the same Quran that is recited today without any change whatsoever. Whatsoever. Not a dot, not a letter. She asked, hijab, isn't that oppression? No, it's not oppression, it's covering. The women covering their heads or covering their bodies is not an oppression. Their husband didn't tell them to do that. Their fathers didn't tell them to do that. Their sons didn't tell them to do that. The imam didn't say to do that. God said for the Muslim ladies, Draw your clothing across your bosoms and do not allow your natural ornaments to be shown except to those within your family circle. What are the natural ornaments of women, in case you don't know what they are? Their breasts, 
their shapes that happen to be different than that of men, their hair, those adornments should be covered. Now, just in case Christian people don't remember, just 40 years ago, just 40 years ago, Christian women never went to church without covering their heads. It wasn't it. Isn't that true? Ask your grandmothers. And just 50 or 60 years ago, 20 years before that, a Christian woman would never come outside with a short skirt, even. Even the nuns themselves today have succumbed to modernity. Because the nuns who committed themselves to the church and a religious life, how did they dress? They're not Muslims. They covered themselves. They covered themselves with an outer garment. And nothing on them was seen except the face and the hands. So if that was accepted by Christianity, it was accepted by religion. That wasn't something just that Muslim women were told, but Jewish women, Christian women, and Muslim women were ordered to do that in their scriptures. Now the fact that the modern civilizations ch chose to tell women they don't have to wear that, and they can wear bikinis, doesn't mean that God is wrong and they are right. Now for the Muslim lady, the wearing of the hijab is a protection for her. It's a distinction for her. Yes, it is a uniform so that she will be known to be a Muslim. She would not be molested. She would not be insulted. And no need for a man to stare at her and look at her because there is nothing appearing of her that would cause any unnatural attraction. Therefore, it is more than likely she can come and go with decency and dignity and that her natural ornaments will not create an inordinate liability for her like so happens when you see women wearing jeans and clothing that seem as if they painted it on themselves. Now all you have to do is look at these two women and you can see the problems that exist. Now of course, it doesn't mean that every woman that doesn't cover herself completely it doesn't mean that she's immoral, it doesn't mean that. But the Quran gives to the Muslim women what we consider to be an ounce of prevention is worth what? What's it, what's it, what's it, you, you know the, you know the, uh, what's it called? An ounce of prevention is worth what? A pound of cure. So just like, just like any one of you, if I asked you, what's your pin number? You wouldn't tell me. If I came to visit you in your house, you wouldn't have your certificates of deposit in front of me. You wouldn't have your jewels in front of me. You wouldn't have your stack of money or your savings in front of me, distributed just because I'm a friend and everything should be transparent. No, you have those valuables in a place that is safe. Might be a bank, might be a safety deposit box. Well, that's just money. That's just tangible things. So don't blame us and don't blame God if he tells us that our mothers and our wives and our daughters, that they should be covered and in a safe place. There's no such thing as the Quran in the English language. There's no such thing as the Quran in any language. There is the transliteration of the meanings. The Quran is in the perspective, uh, perspicuous Arabic language. That is the formula of the Qur'an, that is how it was preserved, that is how it is recited, and that is the only Qur'an. However, what has been done 
for the sake of people understanding and getting an, an insight into the Qur'an, transliterations of the meanings has been given. But that's not the Qur'an. Um, before I answer this other question and go to uh, our very active sister over here, uh, I'll, the, the person asked about uh, segregation. Why do Muslim women, why are they segregated? They're not segregated. They're not segregated. They're separated. There's a difference between segregation and separation. For instance, outside here, you have toilets that say male, female, don't you? Don't you? Why? Why shouldn't there just be a toilet? <laughs> because there are sensitivities that we as moral, decent, dignified, educated people accept that there are sensitivities and privacy that the female would like to have as opposed to just walking into an open toilet. Now maybe in Amsterdam or some other places in Europe where they just have open toilets, it's different. But in most cases in the world, in most places in the world, they select to have a male and a female toilet. Why? Because there's the inherent inclination of human beings to provide sensitivity for women and sensitivity for men. Now in Islam, for us it's not a matter of being inherent. It is something which is God-given inspiration to do what? To separate the sexes. That means the genders. Doesn't mean absolute separation, like we can't see each other, we can't talk to each other, but generally my wife just doesn't I don't go to another man's house and I just sit down with his wife and dance with his wife and he sit down and dance with my wife and uh, this is just this matter of friendship. Bob, just drop over anytime you like. Okay? We don't do that. No, I come to visit Bob or Abdullah. Abdullah's wife comes to visit my wife. I don't socialize with his wife and he doesn't socialize with my wife. Although there may be occasions where we eat together, our families socialize together, but generally, after boys and girls reach the age of seven, the prophet said, even if they're brothers and sisters, separate them from the bed. And when they get to the age of menstruation and they realize another level of consciousness, then give them separate rooms. What to do what? To preserve and protect them from tendencies that human beings have. Tendencies that has manifested itself in civilizations where they don't do that protection. So we are obeying Almighty God. That's what we're doing. And sometimes we just have to believe what God orders us to do and benefit from the medicine. Sometimes when we don't follow what God tells us to do, then we see later on the reasons why. So we don't apologize for that. We say that it brings us dignity, it brings us distinction. Whether it be the hijab of the women or the separation of the men and the women, it brings us distinction, it brings us dignity and protection and morality, additional morality. That's why we do it. Uh, let me answer this question here. If there is a God, wouldn't he then have to ask himself what is the meaning of his existence? Therefore, the meaning of his existence would be from a superior. It seems too infinite. Um, I'll be available uh, after this session here to uh, respond to that. 
Uh, it is not my position to say what God is, but I'll tell you in the Quran what Almighty God says. And I'll give you the transliteration of the meaning. Almighty God, there is no other deity except Him, the ever-living, the self-subsisting, the eternal, and the absolute. He requires no sleep, nor does he need any rest as a result of work. To him, to that God Almighty, belongs the heavens and earth. And he has experiences no fatigue in preserving them and maintaining them. His throne. extends above the heavens and the earth. This is a description that is given in the Quran concerning the Almighty. We follow the prescription and we follow the meaning. What God says about himself, we say. Now those who want the liability on themselves to ask questions about, well, if God created, who created God? Well, if that's a question that bothers you, you ponder on that. It's not a question that ponders us. God is, He is the first without any beginning. And He is the final without any end. And He created without the need to think about it. And He created from nothing. So all the diversity that we see and that we don't see, the macro and the micro realities, is a result of what God has created. And what we call existence is part of His creation. Now God is the creator. Whatever is in existence is part of creation. Now if you can understand the difference between the benefactor and the beneficiaries, you wouldn't have to ask that question. The creator is not subject to the rules and the procedure of creation. If that's still a little bit too difficult for you, I say that what you need to do is, you need a mentor. The person who asked this question, you need a mentor. You need to continue to ask that question, but you need to sit with some people who can help you in talking about that, because as a human being with your limited mind, your limited brain, I could ask you a simple question that you couldn't figure out is, way beneath the issue, the question you ask, just take the number two and multiply it by itself 20 times. Just the number two, I didn't say the number 3,000. Just number two, multiply it by 20 times by itself. It would come to a figure that you could not figure out right here, sitting here. How could your brain, if you couldn't figure that out, how could you talk about who created God or whatever it is that if God brought about existence, something which had to be bring about God into existence? This is not a question for you and it's not a question for me, nor is it a mystery. The one who is the creator is not like the creation. Creation is subject to rules and procedures, laws that can be researched and studied. The Creator creates from nothing. That is how the Creator described Himself to Abraham and Moses and all those prophets and they didn't ask that question. 
Therefore, I don't ask that question. For those who choose to disbelieve in God as an atheist, as an agnostic, or whatever you want to call yourself, for you to choose that, that's okay. But you are still subject to the same laws, whether you be an atheist or not. When you get tired, you will sleep. And when you get thirsty, you will drink. And when your life is over, you will die. Whether you understood the reason about it or not. So you are still subject to those laws. And the one who created and put you in that position of those laws. And we say, you should think about why you are living. And what job you need to have while you're, you're living. And what is the purpose of life? This is the real question for you. Why are you living? Where are you going? And what is the purpose of life? When you discover and answer that question, I think you'll find that that question there becomes obsolete. Yes. Thank you. With the Arabic history, you know, the Arabian period after Muhammad up until 1800s, whatever, um, what we see there is um, there was a strong influence of Sharia law that held that all together. And you had the choice there to either submit to Allah or to, to Islam or suffer the consequences. Many, many Christians and Jews were slaughtered, and the ones which weren't became second-class citizens and were reduced to a life where they had no legal representation or anything of this nature. Is this true, or have I been misled? It's not true. Thank you. It's simply not true. I mean, that's a, that's, that's a, that's a myth. That's a, that's a historical aberration. That is not true whatsoever. And it's very nice that you, um, that you seem to have memorized that, but you didn't memorize any accuracy about Islamic history. Um, if you look to the word Sharia and what it means, you see with the Sharia and, and you see there's a category. Just a minute, my friend. Uh, you mentioned the word Sharia. Do you know what Sharia is? Okay, you see? What, when you use terminologies, at least minimally, you need to know what it means. Now, Sharia is the name for the wide range of Islamic jurisprudence, of which there is a category in Islamic jurisprudence that sets aside and specifies the rights of the non-Muslims. They're called, non-Muslims who live in the, non in the Muslim state are called Ahl-Dhimmi. No, Vim, Vim, Vimmi. Now, Ahl-Dhimmi, it means Specifically, those who have the obligation to pay a tax. Um, I, this is a response, sir. Those who have to pay a tax because they're living under the safety of the Islamic. For instance, I'll make, I'll make it easy for you so you don't think that I'm... Uh, that, you, that you, won't, um, you won't laugh and think this is foolish. Are you Australian? Do you agree that people who live here should pay taxes? Okay, then why should they pay taxes? Because they are enjoying the institutions, the safety, the benefits of this country, isn't it? Okay, similarly, the Islamic law provides that non-Muslims who live under the Islamic government they should also pay a special tax. Why? Because they don't have to be conscripted. One, they don't have to fight in a war. Secondly, they are offered all the same rights as the Muslims. They are offered all the same rights 
Now I gave you the decency of listening to what you said, although it was inaccurate. I'm giving you a definition that I would ask you to go home, look up the word Sharia, punch it into your computer, and objectively now look at what Sharia is. And I tried to say to you, if some Muslims didn't apply Sharia correctly, they are no, they are no worse than Christians who didn't apply Christianity correctly. So, but that's not an indictment against the Sharia, nor is it an indictment against the mission of Jesus Christ. That's what I said originally. And I thought I was quite open and fair about that. I said that Muslims have been guilty of excessive behavior against Christians or Buddhists or Hindus or Jews in some cases. That's not a product of this, the Quran. That's not a product of the Prophet Muhammad, peace be, uh, peace be upon him. Nor is it the characteristic of Islamic civilization. And I think I made a distinction between Islamic civilization and Muslim. Didn't I say that? So I would say that what you need to do, go home and punch in the word Sharia. And then look at it real well. And then take my card, call me back, and then modify your judgment. But you have to be objective to do so. Just as if I make some statements about uh, Australia, because I heard something, I read something, I thought something or whatever, and then somebody corrected me and said, no, that's not correct. What would it be good for me to do? Once I found out the, the facts, I should say, well, I was wrong about that. I apologize and I should modify it. I think you'll do that once you find out. The, the, the city of Mecca is called Haram. Why? Because it's a sanctuary. The place that is, is designated in the home where the women have, can take off their clothes and relax, that area is called Haram. So it comes from a root word. Now, yes, for sure, there have been excesses in Muslim civilizations like there were excesses in other civilizations, but the basis of it is not Islam. And I repeat it over and over. I came, excuse me, I came to talk about Islam as a system, as a law, which God revealed as a legislation, not the people who deviated from that. And now, those people that deviated from that, they are the extraordinary. They are not the rule. Now, I would only ask a Christian, a non-Muslim, to be fair. That don't just snatch things out of, the, out of the air as examples and say, well, didn't this happen? Did Muslim do this? Did Muslim do that? No, take, not you, take a comprehensive look at Islam. An objective look at Islam. What the Quran actually said. What the Prophet Muhammad actually did. What is their evidence about Islamic civilization, not the deviations that some Muslims did. Because if I want to be objective and fair about Christianity, I should first look to the sources. What did Jesus Christ say? How did Jesus Christ live? And how did his companions live? And what were their principles? And if I agree, as I do, that they were honorable and decent and dignified principles, then I don't blame the people who call themselves Christians for all the crimes that they performed against Muslims and others and still performing. I don't blame them. I don't blame Christians for Charles Manson or Timothy McVeigh or the IRA or Jim Jones. I don't blame Christians for that. So why do we continue to hop on deviations that were done at different times and ages over a period of 1,500 years by some Muslims and not give the credit or even read into the Quran itself.
doesn't say if they're deviant they should be beaten that's not what it says there there is a verse in the Quran that speaks about yadribuhunna this is the Arabic terminology yeah. it means admonish them and yadrib here could mean beat it could mean that just excuse me yadribuhunna could mean beat but let's take the example of the Prophet himself because it was revealed to him right did the Prophet did you ever read anything where the Prophet said to beat a woman did you ever read anything where the prophet himself said, or he did himself beat a woman? No, I haven't. Okay, enough said. But I mean, I well, yeah, um, the point is, the point is, any woman that are here, there's no woman here with black eyes. There's, not, there's nothing, I mean, it's absurd to think that in Islam, that we are the kind of, that, that Islam tells us, that if a woman makes a mistake or she's deviant, she's that, beat her up. No, Yathribahunna is a word that's in the Quran and it could be meant to beat. But it means here to admonish them. That's what it means. Now, why men have the right to do this is, is another issue that we, maybe we can't reconcile right here. But beating women, beating up women, abusing women, uh, torturing women, throwing women in dungeons and all those kind of things that are given as depictions about Muslims is incorrect, that is wrong, and it's unfair. That is not the case. And I ask, I mean, let's be fair. I ask, how many Muslim women are here? How many Muslim women are in this room? How many? Can you stand up for me, please? Now, what I would ask any woman to do fairly and justly Go and ask any one of these Muslim women, does the Quran oppress them? Does the Quran provide them their rights? Is the Quran unjust towards them? Has the Quran made them second class citizens? Do they feel undignified? Do they feel abused? Do they feel exploited? Are these depictions accurate? If they are the ones and they are the women, how we make depictions if we don't make reference to them? That's, that would be the fair thing to do. So, no, I, I, I understand. I understand that. And, and, and any time that you're trying to understand something that you don't speak the language of, nor are you speaking to somebody who is an authority of, and you're coming at it with preconditioning, obviously there's going to be some kind of distortion involved. I just say to you from the very beginning, Try to remove those distortions for a moment, and not you, not not you. Yeah, yeah. What you thought was written. Okay, and just like I answered that gentleman over here, did you hear what I asked when he said about the translation? I mean, let's face it. Let's face it. If you told this lady something in her ear, and she told him in his ear, by the time it just got down to the end of this road, what would it be? Just five words. It would be distorted. 
it would be misconstrued. It would not be what you intended. What about a sacred book that was revealed 1,424 years ago in a language that you're not even reading it in? I say, I ask you and anybody else, just be objective and be fair. If you want to read the Quran, don't go into a library and read something that you think is a translation and because you're a woman, read about women. No. I don't care who it's by. I'm just giving you, a, I'm, give, I'm offering you something that I think you have an obligation to do. Yeah. That if you take a book that has 6,626 verses, huh? just because you're a woman, don't look at the verses applying to women and misconstrue that. But no, read the whole book and then secondly, and the second, and that's beautiful. That's beautiful. But what I advise you to do, what your name is? Your name? It's okay. Well, sister, let me advise you this. If you are considering to be a Muslim or not, still I advise you the same thing. Before, look before you leap. And because Islam, because the Quran is not something that you can just open up and just arbitrarily read. I mean, you're, you're an intelligent person. But can you just open up a book of pharmacology and just read it? Can you? I well, ask you, me. Maududi is not our authority in our religion. Oh, sorry, he isn't. No, he isn't. Oh, He's just another Muslim. And again, I'm saying to you that you can easily misconstrue something that you are not familiar with. This is the issue I'm trying to say to you. And I'm not castigating you, I'm not admonishing you, I'm not singling you out, I'm only trying to tell you that if you want to understand something, you can't understand it on the basis of yourself, you're a novice. I mean, there are people who have been Muslim all their lives and they're not qualified to interpret the Quran. I say you should go to someone who's in authority in the language and the religion and ask them, could you explain this verse for me? And they can do that for you. And if you did that step by step, you'll have that, these questions answered. But if you don't do that, you're going to get understandings that are unique to yourself, to your own subjectivity. This is what happens. Because I asked you the question. Could anyone here who is a novice about pharmacology just simply open up a book of pharmacology reference and prescribe for themselves medicines for a particular ailment? Could they do that? Although it's in, it's in English, you couldn't. That's why you go to a doctor, and the doctor does a diagnosis. And after that diagnosis, a prognosis or a treatment plan. And then he writes in Latin a prescription. And he tells you to go next door or down the street to a pharmacist. That pharmacist fills that prescription from that Latin language that he reads in that pharmacology reference. And then he explains to you on the bottle, take this three times a day after a meal. And we accept that. We're talking about the revelation from God Almighty, a divine revelation that we consider it to be. How can someone who's a novice simply just open it up and understand what it means? It has a context. And I would ask every Christian or non-Muslim to consider the context of it. This is the issue. And your questions and your, um, the, the inquiries that you have, they are genuine, uh, absolutely genuine. But if you want benefit from your pursuit of knowledge, 
I say that knowledge has a procedure. You don't jump to college straight from grade school. You have to follow some system. Okay, uh, I'll take a couple more questions here because we do have a constraint of time. Yes, sister. Holy war. No such thing. Absolutely no such thing as a holy war. No such thing as a holy war. There's the word jihad in Arabic does not mean holy war. Jihad comes from the word jihada. It means to exert oneself to struggle to establish what God has ordered for you in the earth. Now, first in yourself. Then after that, to defend or to protect or to enjoin the right or to forbid the wrong. Because God says, had not Almighty God checked one nation by another nation, certainly there would have been the desecration of churches, monasteries, uh, synagogues, masters, and other places in which the, word of God, the name of God is mentioned. What does this mean? It means the same as if there was no agency in the earth to regulate human beings, to adjudicate for human beings, and in some cases to prevent human beings from transgression, the whole earth would be open for the transgression of whoever wanted to do so. So the word jihad in the context of war means when a nation ordained by God is given the responsibility to check the transgression or the immorality of another nation. That's called jihad, not holy war. Now, I think that if any country in the world has the sovereign right to protect its interests, then God has the sovereign right to order his creatures to defend his faith. We don't make any excuse about that. But it's not an issue of taking hostages or fanaticism or holy war or, or bin Laden or the, Afghan, or, or, the, or the Taliban or, or the Iranians or the anybody else and all these other associations that's given about holy war. There's nothing in the Quran about holy war. It's called jihad. And yes, jihad is sacred. Because otherwise, why would somebody commit themselves to fight for justice in the name of God? And inevitably, maybe they will be killed or wounded or imprisoned. Why would they do that unless they considered it to be a sacred duty? Why would a fireman put himself on the line unless he considered it to be a duty? Why would a policeman put himself on the line unless he considered it to be a duty? Why would a soldier of any army put himself at harm's way unless he considered it to be a duty? We Muslims, we feel inevitably in some cases that we have to put ourselves in harm's way to do what? Enjoin the right and forbid the wrong and to check tyranny and aggression in the earth. Both the Jews and the Christians received prophets, messengers, and scripture. But after those prophets and messengers came to them, they corrupted their scripture and in some cases murdered the prophet. A prophet was sent after that to correct those corruptions and to represent and to make a progression of the message and the sanctity of that prophet that came before. So it's the latter part, that it is not the issue, it is the issue that they corrupted the message. And, yes. Yeah, I just, I, I just want to, so, I mean, I think that's why, 
if you, if you look at that, God is the final arbiter. I mean, man, man with limited knowledge, or maybe even led astray, or you know, corrupted. Um, God, in, in the end, will uh, is, is that why there is a succession of, of prophets to continually call the people back to the true faith? Mm. Well, in the case of that verse that you're reading, God is the final arbiter. Here, what it means is that God is the final arbiter, but His word is the is the uh, means by which we do that arbitration. See, it's not abstract. God is the final arbiter, so therefore, the matter will not be arbitrated until we meet God. No, there is justice by God's word. And this is why revelation, why the Quran is not just a spiritual revelation. It is also a book of adjudication and legislation. So when we say that God is the final arbiter, when you and I have a difference, we go to the book of God to arbitrate that issue. And it's not left up to you and I and we just say, well, in the end, God will decide between us. No, God's word can decide between us now. This is what that means. Yes, sir. Uh, you said there's like many prophets. Um, and Muhammad was uh, 400 years ago. Has there been many prophets since then? Or on is how do you say, okay, this person is a prophet? Well, let me start from, from the context of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ said to his uh, companions in the Garden of Gethsemane that uh, they asked him, oh, oh, Rabbi, what will happen when you leave us? He said, fear not. If I leave you, God will send you a comforter, or we can translate it into a counselor. But I have to leave, because if I don't leave, he will not come. You will know him because, and he gave four reasons. You will know him because your hearts and your ears, your hearts and your minds are not prepared for me to tell you all things now. But when he comes, that comforter, that counselor, he will relate to you all things in detail. It's one thing. That means whatever Jesus Christ didn't speak about, whatever he didn't explain, that counselor, that comforter, when he came, he would explain all those things. Second thing, he will not speak from himself, but whatsoever he hears from God, that will he speak. That means that second condition is that he will not speak from his own impulse, but whatever is revealed to him from God, that will he speak. It's the second condition. Third thing he said is that, What he hears from God will explain all things in detail. So it means it's a book of specification. That whatever he's revealed from God, that should be... The fourth thing is, that which he hears from God will remain with you forever. That's the fourth condition. Now after Jesus Christ, what person claimed to receive revelation from Almighty God that did those three things. One, categorically, speaks about every condition of the human drama and sets a law for it. Number two, he did not speak from himself but whatsoever he related that's in the Quran, this is not Muhammad's words. He said he heard that from God, that I can be tested or that I can be determined. Number four, it remained with you forever. 
Number, I'm sorry, number three, explains all things in detail. The Quran has a verse in it that says, this is a book that explains all things in detail. The four, excuse me, number four, the Quran is a revelation that was memorized in the time of the one that received it and has been retained until now. And by the virtue in which it has been retained, it can be progressed and retained for the rest of the world. Stay with us forever. Also, one other thing he said, when he comes, he will mention me. Now in the Quran, there's a chapter called Maryam. Who is Maryam? The mother of Jesus, isn't it? Why wouldn't God, who revealed the Quran to Muhammad, why wouldn't he name a chapter after his, Muhammad's mother? His, mother was, his mother's name was Amina. We would think that if, he, if the chapter was named after Jesus' mother, there should be a chapter named after Muhammad's mother. There isn't. But there is a chapter named after Jesus' mother. Why? Because in that chapter, Jesus' uh, uh, Jesus' grandfather, whose name, a grandmother whose name was Hannah, how she gave birth to Mary is in that chapter. How Mary conceived of Jesus Christ and gave birth to him is in that chapter. The birth of Jesus Christ is in that chapter. All the miracles of Jesus Christ is in that chapter. So therefore, a chapter was sent to that prophet to confirm what Jesus Christ prophesied. And if in fact, the Quran is what it is, the prophet said, verily, this is the final revelation from Almighty God and I am the final prophet to mankind. Not to the Arabs, not to the people of my time, but for all human beings, for all times and all places. Therefore, eliminating the need for another prophet to come after, or another book to come after, or for any additions to be made upon the system of God afterwards. This is the position of the Quran. Um, brothers and sisters, uh, honestly, I'd like to take as many questions as possible, but I think we do have some constraints of time. Um, I'm going to take one more question, and don't be angry if I don't choose you. Uh, I'm going to take this lady right here. I gave you, you're correct, I gave you an explanation and a justification that that, and in fact, I wasn't quoting verbatim. Just, just a minute. I wasn't quoting verbatim because I'm not an authority on the Bible. I was giving it to you in context. Excuse me. Just, just, and I don't want to argue with you. I listen to you, and then I'm going to answer you. But while I'm talking, you shouldn't talk. Is that, is, was that fair? Okay. Now, I ask you. You said it was the, it was the Holy Spirit. No, no, John said that. No, no, well, okay, if you say John said it. No, no, God said it. If you say God said it. 
If you say God said it, that it will be the Holy Spirit, then okay. What book, what prophet, what revelation came after Jesus Christ that fulfilled that prophecy? The day of what? The day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit came and fulfilled that prophecy. Okay, if that's your position, if that's your interpretation of that, I, well, if it's God's interpretation based upon your relating it, we won't argue that. I gave, uh, and I'll give another reference just in case. Um, there's a five books which are called the Apocrypha. Have you heard of that? There's five books that were expunged by the Roman Catholic Church. They didn't like these five books. Just, they're called the Apocrypha. One of those books is called the Gospel of Boniface. Who was Boniface? I believe he was a disciple of Jesus. Okay, good. You believe it or you know that? Okay, we know historically that Boniface was the blind disciple of Jesus Christ. Now, because his book was expunged by the Roman Catholic Church doesn't mean that we can't even use that because it is a document, a historical document. Now the John you're speaking about, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, just in case you don't know this, let me give you a little piece of information, a little Bible information. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, what was John's last name? Excuse me, wait, 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 no, just... Okay, then, then, all right, then, what I want you to do is, what I want you to do is, if you were forthright in the information you gave to us about the Pentecost, and you were very clear, definite, whatever, I want you to answer as definite as you can. If you don't know, okay, do excuse me, if you don't know, just say, I don't know. No, I do know John was an eyewitness and a disciple of Jesus. He was okay, good. Well, let me tell you this, and what I'll refer you to is not a Muslim source, and Bear with me, since you put yourself out there. You bear with me now. I want you, and I want everybody here, to go to the Encyclopedia Britannica tonight, and then or go to the Christian Encyclopedia or the Catholic Encyclopedia and ask for the question of the four Gospels, four Gospel writers. What you're going to find is that the first Gospel writer wrote 40 years after Jesus Christ. That's number one. Just... Just, to, just. All right, we're not talking about the Holy Spirit anymore. I want to give you some. My question to you was, why were you taking it out of context? Now you're giving me a great big lecture on. I'm not giving it to you. What you have to understand, and what's your name, ma'am? Vicky. Vicky, what you have to understand is that when you ask a question and I answer, I'm answering to the audience. Now, if you ask a question, you have to understand that when I answer, I'm going to answer the audience. Well, whatever I go back to, that's my right. No, excuse me. Whatever I go back to, that's my right to go back to it, to explain. Now, if you don't want to hear the explanation, that's one thing. But now, since you made a statement about John, I want to explain to you that the Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the first of them who wrote, wrote 40 years after Jesus. The latest of them that wrote, wrote 80 years after Jesus. Neither Matthew, Mark, Luke, nor John saw Jesus Christ, walked with Jesus Christ, ate with Jesus Christ, prayed with Jesus Christ, ever knew Jesus Christ at all. Now that is, excuse me. I'm sorry, but Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they were 
Okay. And John were disciples, and Luke was a historian. Absolutely not. Well, you'll find. The other thing is what I want to point out for you, Vicky, is that, ironically, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, all of them wrote in the beginning of their book, according to, according to, according to, according to. According to, according to, according to, according to. Now, no one writing in the first person ever writes according to. Six, certainly not four different people would write according to. All four also chose not to write their last names. So, four writers, four writers, and according to history, not my history, but the church fathers, and the authorities of the Bible all agree that Matthew, 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 Mark, Luke, and John, 40 years was the earliest of those writers. They never walked, nor talked, nor prayed, nor lived, nor saw Jesus Christ. And also, in addition to that, the man called Paul, who wrote the rest of the New Testament, the man called Paul, neither did he walk, talk, pray, live, or know Jesus Christ at all. But on his own account said that while he was on the road to Damascus, on the way to capture some more Christians because he was a bounty hunter, he saw a vision, he fell off a horse, he heard a voice that appointed him as an apostle of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles. So what makes him different from Muhammad, my friend? Oh, that's a different question, Vicky. No, well, you haven't answered my first one yet. Well, then why do you ask the second one then? <laughs> Okay. See, so, now look, now look, Vicky, all I want to do is now, is give you some, we're, obviously we're not going to reconcile this here. Because you've got, excuse me, you've got years of conditioning and so do I. Now you give me some information, but I've given you some back. Now what I think we could probably do is not reconcile it all, but all of us can, not just Vicky and Khalid, all of us now can go back to, I didn't say go back to the Quran or some, some, some Muslim writers, I said, go back to the, um, the Catholic Encyclopedia. Go back to the Encyclopedia Britannica. Go back to the church fathers and writers, and you'll find that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John never saw, talked, walked, or knew Jesus Christ at all. Okay, we won't argue that point no more. I'm just trying to say to you that... The other reference I want to give to you, if we don't want to consider Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, or whatever, is that there is the Gospel of Barnabas. Now, in the Gospel of Barnabas, who you may not want to accept at all, in the Gospel of Barnabas, I want you to go to the encyclopedia, like I asked you to, if you dare, and punch up the word St. Barnabas, or punch the word Apocrypha, and then read in St. Barnabas where the Comforter's name was mentioned specifically. Muhammad the Admirable. Now that was, that's Barnabas. Of course you don't need to accept that. So we have references historically that we can compare, although I will admit to you, I'm not using that as an authority, nor am I using John as an authority. I just use it, you understand me, as a reference. That's all, not as an authority. You can accept it or you can reject it and so can we. That's not the proof for us about who Muhammad was. The proof for us is that the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessing be upon him, that he confirmed the life of Jesus Christ and that his birth and his mother and his miracles and his prophecy and his message is mentioned in the Quran of which there is no doubt.
That was the issue. Not about John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, or Barnabas, but just that Jesus Christ is confirmed in the Quran. Now, if you are open-minded enough, I would recommend you to go to the encyclopedia and verify some of what I said, and also go to the Quran and see what the Quran has said in the third chapter of the Quran called Al-Imran, and see what the Quran says also about Jesus Christ and see if it's accurate in your estimation, because this is the issue. And here we don't want to, we're not trying to make Muslims or convert anybody from what they truly believe, but only to give you some insight to see perhaps if you are objective enough to do some further research. Never give yourself a 10 because you can't grow. On a scale of 1 to 10, give yourself a 9. Leave a little bit of room there. Leave a window open. You may find out that there's something in that window that can add on to your knowledge. Uh, brothers and sisters, um, you know, I want to thank you very much. Uh, I want to appreciate your, I, want, I, I truly appreciate your tolerance. Uh, the non-Muslims especially that came here and sat for the amount of time that you have and that uh, respected what I had to say while you may have not accepted it, uh, that's fine. I, we sh surely appreciate your indulgence and your patience and your tolerance. We hope that we've said some things that, uh, that are thought-provoking, interesting, that will lead you to make some further investigation. Uh, we hope that some of you uh, may uh, continue your investigation objectively about Islam and you may find it to be a revelation that is acceptable to you, that it is an inspiration that will uh, benefit and complement your life, that you will look into the life of the Prophet Muhammad, peace and blessing be upon him, and maybe you will find him to be a personality, a behavior worthy of your adopting and that you would consider Islam as a proposition that perhaps you may want to yourself embrace. Uh, however remote that, uh, that possibility may be, that is a proposition that we came here to offer to you. And whether it be uh, Vicky or this young lady that's right here, or the gentleman here, or anyone else that asked the question, we never intended to cast any aspersion upon uh, the name of Jesus Christ or the religion of Christianity or anybody else's belief, but merely to point out what in our estimation to be a proposition of Islam and to open up a window of that to you and we ask Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala to accept this uh, from us. Uh, anybody that is here who would like to further this conversation, because something burning that you'd like to say to me that you didn't say or you didn't get a chance to say, I think that it may be a room set aside uh, upstairs here someplace. I will sit in that room for the next 20 minutes to 30 minutes and entertain some further questions. Uh, if there's somebody here that, uh, that uh, wants to ask me something that they don't want to say here, um, pro or con about Islam. I'll be sitting in that, it won't be an upper room, uh, but I'll be sitting in that room uh, and I'll be available to receive you, uh, inshallah. Thank you very much. What is the purpose of life?
Why is it that when we ask the simple question, what is the purpose of our lives? Why do we get so many different answers? It is because people haven't really thought about it. It's too frightening. Not the question itself is frightening, but what's frightening is that if we answer it clearly, it may change our lives indelibly. And we are afraid of change. And now we have discovered that every part of creation that has been discovered is inside of a drop of water. Well, the Quran already said that to us 1,500 years ago, that we created everything and every single thing from water. The Quran said that. We want to talk this evening about Jesus, the son of Mary, and his phenomenal birth. A birth that very few human beings, whether Muslims or Christians, have any argument about. We believe, and our Quran makes it clear for us and confirms for us, that Jesus Christ, in fact, he was born without the intervention of sperm. That his mother, Mary, that blessed woman, she became pregnant by the word of God. No man touched her. Eight murders or homicides are committed every 19 minutes. And two rapes are committed every seven minutes. And there are three robberies every 59 seconds. There are 257,000 children that are legally or illegally aborted. That is, 257,000 children are killed in the womb by license. 21 million children are born every year out of wedlock who do not know their mothers and fathers or who do not know whom they are fathered by. 2.8 million suicides every year of human beings who find no reason to live. With these kinds of social problems inside of their own boundaries, inside of their own governments, in their own institutions, how can they bring peace to the world? It doesn't make sense. Oh Muslims, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reminds you and me that whatever good happens, it is from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And if something else happens, this is from our own hands. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, He has ordered you and I to enjoin what is right and forbid what is wrong. And when we cease to do that, we don't enjoin the right 
we don't enjoin, uh, enjoin the, we don't enjoin the right, we don't forbid the wrong, then Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala promised that He will visit us a calamity from Himself. So that when the calamity happens or you are punished and the musibah comes upon you and you call upon Allah, He will not answer. What do the Muslims of today expect? The character of the Muslim is the most important part of the Muslim. Not what he or she says, not only what he or she wears, not where they come from or who their mother or father is or grandfather, not the country they live in, or for that matter, if they live next to the Kaaba. This is not important at all. It is the character, because the character is the actual fruit. And we can remember on the occasion when the Prophet ﷺ invited his companions to make a sacrifice in the way of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And Umar ibn al-Khattab he brought half of his wealth. And he considered this to have been a major sacrifice. And he was very proud of that. But when Abu Bakr came, Abu Bakr, he brought all of his wealth. And when the Prophet asked Abu Bakr, what he had left for his family, what was the response of Abu Bakr He said, Allahu wa Rasuluhu. Allah and his messenger And it was by the suggestion or the order of the Prophet that Abu Bakr took back some of his wealth for his family. And this is why the Prophet mentioned that there was no one from among the Muslims who displayed his loyalty to Allah and his messenger وسلم, similar to that of Abu Bakr. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, he said, yes, definitely. Who? Who is better? Who is more excellent than the one that calls towards Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala? Not just calling, not just shouting, not just arguing. But they are acting upon what they are calling. They are setting a precedent for what they are calling too. They have established a behavior, a paradigm, an example to what they are calling too. And they openly say, announce, I am Muslim. Where oceans and rivers meet, does the ocean take over the river? It doesn't, although the ocean might be five times, six times, eight times, ten times larger than a river. And you know, if you took two bodies of water and you put a funnel in between them, what would happen? The larger body would absorb the smaller body, wouldn't they? But in the case of the ocean and the river, it doesn't happen because Allah said He put a bazak. So they do not overcome each other. And one of our uh, Jacques Cousteau, who passed away now, he was a marine biologist. 
he was able to film under the ocean where the rivers meet the ocean and the river meets the ocean and the ocean meets the river and they go back. They meet and they go back. So therefore the rivers return back to itself and the ocean returns back to itself and they do not overcome each other. How did the prophet know that? Islam has five fundamental pillars, the first of which is to bear witness that there is none to be worshipped except Almighty God, consistent with the first commandment given to Moses, consistent with the first commandment that Jesus Christ also said is the greatest of the commandments. Hear ye, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one, absolutely one, not the number one. Not the number one that could be divided into one, two, three. Not the number one that could be multiplied. But absolutely one, having no one besides, no other God besides. Hear ye, O Israel, the Lord thy God is one, and thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart and all thy mind and all thy soul, and thou shalt not worship anyone except the Lord thy God nor bow down to any graven images in the heavens or the earth or the sea below. Such said Moses, and such said confirmed Jesus Christ, and such said the Quran. This is what we bear witness, and this is the first pillar of Islam, and the most important. If war erupts in Iraq, more than 3,000 missiles will be rained upon Iraq in a course of six, six hours and more than a half a million people will be killed. Can you tell me how the lives of a half a million people are equal to a leader, Saddam Hussein? If America was able to go into South America and pull out, what was the guy's name, General uh, Noriega. Noriega. America was selling drugs with Noriega, but then Noriega flipped on them. So they went in and took this man from his country, brought him out, and put him in jail for life in their country. So why did they don't just go into Iraq and pull out Saddam? No, they need to go into Iraq. Why? Because you'll find that in a matter of six months after the war, the prices in the oil will go down. And as we speak right now, there are 27 mega companies, mega companies who are bidding for contracts for the reconstruction of Iraq. What does it have to do with Saddam Hussein and democracy? If a man had to get pregnant and have a baby, he would die. And then on top of that, if he had to look forward to taking care of that child for the next 10, 15, 20 years, and sometimes the mother, she's taking care of a grown child. Men who still live with their mothers, you couldn't do it. And still she's taking care of herself, and she's taking care of her husband. May Allah subhanahu wa reward those sisters. And may Allah cover their faults. And may Allah cause the husbands and brothers and sons to appreciate them because they are the goodly trees that bear the goodly fruit Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala mentioned in the Quran. 
the Messenger of Allah وسلم, he made brotherhood very sacred, very important. It's the whole basis of the Muslim society, brotherhood. And when there's no brotherhood, believe it, there is no substance among the Muslims. No substance. The first principle and characteristics of da'wah is that the da'i has to have knowledge. Not just ambition, not just emotional drive, and not just a reaction to some insult that somebody has said, and not just a feeling to want to give da'wah because you know it's an obligation. All of those things are good and it's all necessary. But without knowledge, what are you going to do? But always show your composure and your willingness to talk to anybody. Because why? You put your trust in Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala from the very beginning. The Messenger of Allah said, Allah, He didn't have all the answers. But He put His trust upon Allah. Allah says to him, فَتَوَكَّلُوا عَلَى اللَّهِ إِن كُنْتُمْ مُؤْمِنِينَ القائد أعلى المسدد نبينا الهادي محمد في روحه عزم عظيم في الهمة الكبرى تجسد يغشى الوضى من غير خوف وحليل والأحزاب تشد في روحه عزم عظيم في الهمة الكبرى تجسد يغشى الوضى من غير خوف وحنين والأحزاب تشد يغشى الوضى من غير خوف وحنين والأحزاب تشد